1 Peter, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, James. Uh, well, let's uh, pray before we hear from God. Thank you, Lord, so much uh, for how you reveal yourself in the Scriptures, that they are your inspired Word. Every one of them are true and infallible uh, in what they have, you have purposed them to do. We thank you for them as a great gift, and we thank you that they reveal to us, Lord, the mysteries of who you are and what you've done. We thank you, Lord, for this mystery we're going to uh, delve into today the mystery that you are one God in three persons, Lord. Help us to know, help us to glimpse something that is far above our comprehension. Help us to understand a little bit about what it means, Lord. But most of all, Lord, help, it, help us to hide these truths in our hearts so they will change our lives and be something that is practically uh, different in how we live. Um, and Lord, ultimately help us to worship you more because of these things. Amen. All right, well, the other day I was uh, thinking about the, the TV shows I really love. And, and you know, there's some shows that I, I kind of go, all right, okay, I can, I can watch them. They're, they're pretty interesting. But there's some that I love, like some that I just get wrapped up into. At the moment, uh, Tim's introduced me to Vikings. And I'm just like, I just can't wait to get home and watch more Vikings. Like, <laughs> I love you guys, but... <laughs> uh, but there's some shows, right? And, and for you, it might not be TV, but it might be a book. It might be a series of books. It might be a movie that you just love. When you watch it, it just you feel something in your heart um, that's, uh, that connects you with it. And I was wondering about what, what is that? What is it that makes us feel that way? And I think for me, at least, one of the things is great characters. Yeah. Great characters. Not just um, two-dimensional characters, but characters that are, are deep that that are profound, but not only that, but characters that develop as the story goes on, right? The best stories introduce a character, and then as you go on, they, you're, you're, they are, um, it's revealed to you their motivations, their, what, what drives them, what makes them tick. And as you do, you relate to them more, right? And you enjoy them more. Uh, one great example I thought of was uh, Gandalf in Lord of the Rings, right? Yeah, at the beginning of Lord of the Rings, you meet this kind of hoary old wizard, He's, uh, he's, he seems pretty awesome. He's got a few tricks up his sleeve, uh, but perhaps nothing more than a, just a traveling magician, uh, kind of a mentor figure for, uh, for Bilbo and Frodo. It's pretty good with fireworks. But then as the story progresses, what happens is you, you learn more about Gandalf to the point where suddenly he is revealed as not a conjurer of cheap tricks, but Gandalf the White. Gandalf the Great, Gandalf, who is one of, uh, one of the greatest and most powerful wizards in the whole world. I've said uh, many times before that the, the greatest stories that we know and love are reflections, 
shadows of the great story of God, the true story of God. When we open Scripture and we start with those first lines, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We meet the character, the most important character in the Bible, God. But we don't learn everything about him, do we? Do we? we? We learn in those first words that he is the creator, but there's, there's more to the story. There's more that will be revealed. And so by the time we get to the end of Scripture, when we read those last verses of Revelation, one thing that has been revealed to us is that God is Trinity. God is one God in three persons. Now, you won't find the word Trinity in the Bible, uh, but since the earliest times, the, the church of God has agreed that this is how God has revealed himself, that we believe in one God revealed to us in three persons. That is, God is Father, God is Son, God is Spirit, God is the Holy Spirit. Now, for many, the doctrine of the Trinity, thinking about the Trinity, has been controversial. You know? The Trinity is a bit like the crazy uncle you really hope doesn't turn up at your birthday party. And when they do, it's just a bit embarrassing. You know? For some people, the Trinity is like that. It's, it's, a, it's just a bit awkward because it's hard to explain. And things that are hard to explain are, are sometimes embarrassing. But the Trinity isn't something that we should or... or a sweep under the carpet. The Trinity is actually the crown jewel of our faith. Without the Trinity, there would be no gospel, and without the gospel, there is no hope. So today, let's grit our teeth, let's gird our loins, because we're jumping into the Trinity, the mysterious Trinity. And to do that, I want to um, talk about three things about the Trinity. I want to talk about the life of the Trinity. I want to talk about the work of the Trinity. And I want to talk about our identity in the Trinity. All right? The life of the Trinity, the work of the Trinity, and our identity in the Trinity. Okay, so starting off, the life of the Trinity. Uh, when people are interested in Christianity here at Inner West, one of the things we take them through is a little course called 321. Uh, a few of you have done it, so you know what I'm talking about. Um, and at the beginning of the very first video, the, the presenter asks a very interesting question. He asks us, what do you think was there in the beginning? So before uh, the, universe was, the universe existed, before planets, before protons, what was there in the beginning? Different people will have different answers. Some people will say, it's a really common answer, that there was nothing. There was nothing in the beginning. It was just an absolute zero point. Others might say something different. Others might say that uh, in the beginning it was chaos. In a scientific way, this is uh, saying that there were just random, powerful forces interacting in completely random ways, bouncing around. It's random, it's chaotic. In a religious sense, uh, creation uh, could be just the collateral damage of a, some sort of cosmic war between gods. So you might say there was chaos. A third uh, common answer would be that there was power. 
Again, there's a scientific version of this, that uh, in the beginning there was simply a one powerful universal law kind of grinding away. The religious version would be that this powerful universal law has a name, God. This is the God that most people either believe or don't believe in. A single solitary power uh, who is by himself and, and grinds away by himself. How you answer these questions is really important. Because it doesn't just tell you what you believe about the origins of the world, it tells you what you believe about life. If you say that in the beginning then there was nothing, then life is hopeless. Because we began as nothing, we will end as nothing. And in the beginning, well, is this what really has any meaning? It's just nothing. If you believe that in the beginning there was chaos, then life is random. There's no rhyme or reason why anything happens. It's just random chance or fortune. Some will succeed, some will not. Some will live, some will die. It's all random. And if in the beginning there was power, then life is unjust. The deck is uh, stacked against us. There's no way to win. A, a small few, sure, may be in the know and in the knowledge about how to live properly, but the rest of us are just doomed to figure it out on our own, doomed to fail against an unknowable power driving the world. So a, a very bleak, I know, and that is why Christians believe none of those things. What do we believe existed in the beginning, before anything was made? Love. That's what we believe existed in the beginning. 1 John uh, tells us that God is love. Not just that He does love, that He loves, but that in His very essence, in His very being, He is love. He defines love. And that can only happen if, if for eternity past, God has something to love, right? Love has to have an object of love. And so this means that God cannot be a single solitary power. For Him to truly be love, He has to have had something to love. He has to be able to love within Himself. And so God is revealed to us as one God but also three persons united in perfect love. One God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This explains why every human being longs for love. Why it feels so good uh, to, to love and to be loved in return. Why we long for it, why we chase after it. It also explains why humanity is so diverse, because if we are made in God's image, and God is a community, God is a diversity, then it makes sense that we as well as humans would be different, have different stories, different personalities, different actions. But because God is one, it also explains why we love to be in community. Why we love, as, as diverse as we are, why we love to come together into one whole. In our very being, we reflect the God who made us, who is both one and three, both unity and diversity. One God, three persons, a tri 
unity, the Trinity. Now, as I said, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. So how did this come about? Well, we have to go right back into the Old Testament to find out. In, in Deuteronomy, Moses taught Israel that there is only one God. We heard it read out before. In the great um, Shema of, the, of chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, Moses said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. God is one. This is against the beliefs of the nations who believed in a pantheon of gods. That is, multiple gods. Gods for the sky, gods for the earth, gods for the trees, God for the water, God for the sun, God for the harvest, God for the war, God for the peace, God for love. This is what the nations believe. Against that, Moses says to Israel, no, that's not true. There is not many gods. There is one God the Lord Almighty, the creator of everything. And yet even in the Old Testament, there are hints that this is not the end of the story. Remember in Genesis 1, God said, let us create mankind in our image. Not only that, in Genesis 1, the Spirit of God, it says, hovered over the waters. So even now, there's, there's hints, little hints, that maybe this is not the end of the story, that God may be one, but there's something more to it than that. There's something yet to be revealed. We'd have to wait to find out what that was. One writer observed that the Old Testament is a little bit look like um, looking into a darkened room. You can see shapes and shadows of different things. But then when the light is switched on, suddenly you can go, yeah, that's a chair, that's a couch, that's a table. The New Testament is the light turning on and the shadows of God's identity are dispelled. A curtain is thrown back, the light streams in. And what is revealed is Jesus Christ, God become man. We look at Genesis 1.1, let's look at John 1.1. John 1.1 starts, In the beginning was the Word. The Word is Jesus. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Have you ever thought of that as something about the Trinity? It is. What it's saying is that this Word, this Jesus, is God, but He's also with God. How can that happen? He is, he is both the same in substance and essence, and yet He's different somehow as well. Then later on, Jesus refers to Himself as I am the same way God introduced himself to Moses in the Old Testament. I am. So Jesus is saying, I am the I am. <laughs> I am God. Now, so far, we could think that God simply came down and took human form, a bit like uh, the gods of Greek mythology who would come down and become a, a person or a swan or something else. But one early scene in the gospel shows that this isn't the case. This isn't what happening, is happening here with Jesus. Um, and that's Jesus' baptism. So in the early chapters, uh, Jesus goes to be baptized by John. So Jesus, the Son, goes down into the water. And at the same time, God the Father speaks from heaven saying, This is my loved Son, of whom I am well pleased. And the Bible says, God the Spirit came down from heaven uh, in bodily form like a dove and hovers over Jesus just like he did 
over the waters of creation. In this one beautiful scene of the Gospels, we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit together relating. And clearly, all three are divine. But just as clearly, here we do not have three gods, but one. Now, following the Gospels, it is clear that even though uh, the disciples, the apostles, didn't have everything figured out, in practice, they worshipped the Trinity. They worshipped the Father. They worshipped Jesus. They worshipped the Spirit, each distinctly, but also essentially one. Uh, there's a few verses which really demonstrate this, um, all from the, the books of Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8.6 says, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. And then in 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, uh, And that is what some of you were, that is um, sinners, reprobates, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And then finally, in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the very last verse, Paul says, May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So clearly, and this is just a, a few verses, even though they didn't have it all worked out, Paul and the apostles knew that God was one God, but revealed to us as three persons. Now, at this point, someone will say, oh, that's all very well and good, Pete, but give us an illustration, please. And you may have heard a few. Uh, name one. Who's heard an illustration of the Trinity before? Come on, someone must have. Water, ice, thank you. Uh, so it's a really common illustration is that the, the God, the Trinity, is like water. Because water can be, uh, sometimes it's a liquid. Sometimes it's like ice, it's a solid. Sometimes it's like uh, a gas, it's steam. Always water, but in different forms. So that's like the Trinity, right? Wrong. <laughs> I hate to tell you, but your Sunday school teacher was off the off the track a little bit, uh, not the best illustration. It gets us some of the way there. Sure, we're talking about one thing that's in three different forms. But the problem with the illustration is that it suggests that uh, God can only be one of those three at any one time. Water can only be, cannot be a gas and cannot be a solid at the same time. It's got to be one or the other. Well, it's very clear in Scripture that God doesn't just manifest himself as sometimes the Father, sometimes the Son, sometimes the Spirit, but he is all three all the time, which is good for us because otherwise, whenever we come to God, we couldn't know what God we're going to get. Is it going to be God the Son? Is it going to be God the Father? We don't know. It could be any of them. But then when we come to God, we get all three. And th unfortunately, all illustrations are basically the same for the Trinity. They get us some of the way there, but they can't get us all the way there. And actually, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with it because God should be beyond our understanding. Because if we can comprehend God, then maybe he's actually not as big as we thought he was. So it's a mystery. I don't know how it works. There's, there's no real great illustration I can give. But actually, in, in, this, in a world which is marked by scientific rationalism, 
it's really good to have some mystery in life. Because mystery is what often will affect our hearts much, much greater than just mere facts and illustrations. So I'm sorry if I've let you down there. But what God does want us to know is that this is the truth, that, this, that God is Trinity, He is three in one. And He wants us to know not just what He is, but He wants us to know how He acts and how He works. How does the Trinity work? That's the second point, the work of the Trinity. Uh, when we talk about the oneness of the Trinity, we mean that the fact that God is united in essence and in purpose and in integrity. So, Particularly here, God is united in purpose. He has a plan. He is trying to do something. And within the Trinity, there is never any disagreement about this. From eternity's past, the Trinity has agreed within itself about what they're going to do. There's no jostling for position. Uh, there's no disagreements. There's no infighting. It's just perfect, harmonious agreement. And before time began, the Trinity agreed within itself that it would act to redeem the world from sin and death. This is where we see not just the unity, but the diversity of God, because as much as the Trinity is united in purpose, they are diverse in their roles. They each act in different ways that are distinct from each other. The Father and the Son and the Spirit act differently in history, in salvation, in order to save us from sin and reconcile us to themselves. In other words, just like a footy team is one in name and one in purpose, and yet the players play different positions so as to achieve the goal of winning the match. Trinity works in somewhat the same way. Uh, I know it is this clearer than in the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, the exiles scattered throughout Asia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. So what Peter is saying is that the persons of the Trinity hold the whole gospel together in a really unique way. The Father initiates redemption. He kickstarts it. He starts it off. Before time began, he ordained in love that despite humanity's sin and rebellion that he knew would happen, he would choose and pursue a people that would be redeemed and reconciled to himself. The Father initiates. The Son then accomplishes redemption. Out of humble submission to the Father, Jesus, the Son, says, Yes, I will, I will go to earth. I will become a human. I will die on the cross. I will shed my blood for the people that I love. The Son accomplishes. Sprinkled with His blood means that as Christians, we should be daily reminded of this, that Christ died for us. The Son accomplishes. And then finally, the Holy Spirit applies redemption. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us. In other words, His job is to make the gospel real in our lives, to make it true and real and lived out in our lives, to be transformed to, to be more like Jesus every day. So He gives us power to be able to do what we would not be able to do 
to be obedient to Jesus. And he reminds us of who we are in Christ, what our gospel identity is. So in the plan of salvation, the Father initiates, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies. Another way to say it is this. The Father is God for us. The Son is God with us. The Spirit is God within us. The Father is God for us. The Son is God with us. The Spirit is God within us. And what does Peter say as a result of all this? End of verse 2, he says, Grace and peace be yours in abundance. This isn't just a trite little greeting. This is saying that the work of the Trinity is to extend the same love and harmony and peace that they have within themselves into us as his people, giving us grace and peace in abundance. And so in a real experiential way, God's desire is that we should all be drawn into the life of the Trinity to experience in reality the loving care and sovereign power of the Father the breathtaking humility and grace of the Son and the miraculous power and comfort of the Spirit and the mutual love that they share between them. The unity and diversity of the Trinity should be the atmosphere that we breathe as Christians, as a church. And if we ignore or dismiss any of the persons of God, we are at risk of ignoring and dismissing a whole section of the gospel. And so we will diminish the grace and peace that we have access to. So we should now understand something about the life of the Trinity. There's one God, three persons united in love. And something of the work of the Trinity that they uh, have determined to save us in different ways. So let's finish now with what makes this practical for us. What is our identity in the Trinity? It's a good question, isn't it? Does the Trinity really matter? I was reading one guy who was basically saying, no, it doesn't. I mean, who really cares if, it's, if God is Trinity? Surely we just relate to God anyway. Surely the Trinity is just something for theologians and Bible college students and pastors. Does it really matter for the average Christian? Well, I'm hoping that by now you've started to see that the Trinity is not some dry theory. But it's glorious, it's beautiful. The Trinity is the jewel in our crown. But it's also really practical. The Trinity makes a difference in how we live as Christians. Now Jesus says in John 14, 23, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. So God's delight is to draw us, to wrap us up, in the Trinity, like, a, like being wrapped in a warm blanket. Having the Trinity make their home with us to changes us forever. It gives us a, a new purpose, gives us a new identity, a new name, and one that is distinctly Trinitarian, Trinity-shaped. What do I mean by this? Well, at the end of Matthew, Jesus gives his famous commission Uh, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, (laughs) baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. 
So if you have been baptized, you were not just baptized into the name of God, you were baptized into the name of the Father, into the name of the Son, into the name of the Spirit. And baptism is the, is the beginning of the Christian life. It's what you do when you put your faith in Jesus and say that you believe in God. They are your colors to the mask. But, and baptism is water. It's going down and being drenched in water. But baptism is not just the beginning of the Christian life. Baptism is all through the Christian life because it just means to be immersed. So it means that, it means that every day we are to be immersed in the, our new identity as being baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. And this identity means that uh, we have something different from each of those three persons. So we're baptized in the name of the Father. What does that mean? Well, it means that we are adopted children of God, that we have been brought into His family, that He is now our loving Father. We are His grateful children. And that means that we no longer have to look to other things for our identity. No, we have to look to other things to, to make, give our life meaning or purpose or value because the Father has looked at us and said the same thing that he said to Jesus himself. You are my beautiful children. With you I am well pleased. And we're baptized into the name of the Son. Jesus was born in human form even though he's God. Jesus was born as a humble servant, even though he is king. As a human, he represents us. As a servant, he died for us, dealing with sin and death that we were enslaved to, redeeming us. That means that we're now free to follow him to be servants like he was. We don't have to play the world's game anymore. We don't have to constantly uh, play the game of one-upmanship of trying to be the best, of trying to be number one, of trying to be the greatest above all, because Jesus made himself the least in order to serve us, even though he was the most. And so we can live lives serving others. Truly, truly, the last shall be first in the kingdom of heaven. Truly, truly, the very least of us is the greatest in God's realm. And we see even within the Trinity how the Son humbly submits himself to his Father, even from before time began for our sake. So like Jesus, we learn to serve. Finally, we are baptized into the name of the Spirit. Jesus says, I have to go back to the Father. I have to die and, and ascend back to him so I can send you the Spirit. If you're a Christian, then you have the Spirit in you. The very presence of Jesus that makes real everything that Jesus did on the cross. It's real in your life through the Spirit. He's transforming you, making you holy. And He's also sending you. He's sending us. The God the Father sent the Son. The Son sends the Spirit. The Spirit sends the church out into the world to make disciples, to be witnesses of all that God has done. So what's our identity? Because of the Father, we're a family. Because of the Son, we're servants, and because of the Spirit, we're missionaries. So we are a family of servant missionaries. And we're called to love like family, called to radically commit to each other, we're called to serve like Jesus, to radically sacrifice for each other. And as we do that, the Spirit sends us out so that others might be drawn into this atmosphere of Father, Son, and Spirit, so that they might come to know this God that we know. 
Wouldn't it be amazing here if at Inner West we were constantly helping each other to dive deeper into our identity as a family of missionary servants. To understand our Trinitarian identity, our Trinitarian shape to our lives. In a minute, I'm going to uh, finish by praying for these things. But one last thing I thought would be good to talk about. Uh, it's a question that came up at our MC last Thursday night. And that is, who do we pray for? Who do we pray to? Should we pray to Jesus? Should we pray to the Spirit? Should we pray to the Father? Or should we pray to God? <laughs> how does that work? It's actually really important. Uh, notice how Jesus taught us to pray. He said, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Even Jesus himself prayed to his Father. But the only way we can pray to God as Father is because of what Jesus has done. Jesus has died on the cross and so torn the curtain, separating us from God's presence, from a relationship with the Father. And so through Jesus, we can pray to him. We can come to him as his children. But the only way we can do that is by the power of the Spirit, because the Spirit is the gospel made real in our lives. And so I think that the natural and normal right way to pray is to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. I think that should be natural and normal for us. Does that mean we can't pray just to the Spirit, just to the, the Son, just to the Father? No, I think we can because each of the three is a person and a person is meant to be related to, to, to talk to. So when we should we do that? Well, here's when I think we should do it. When we are super... Uh, full of gratitude to the Father for what He has done in adopting us, we should pray to the Father. When we are full of gratitude and praise to the Son for redeeming us on the cross, we should pray to Jesus. And when we are full of gratitude to what the Spirit has done, that He is changing us, transforming us and sending us, we should pray to the Spirit. And when we're calling on those three to, to help us in our daily lives in their unique way, then we should pray to them. We should pray to them. And so even then, our prayers will take it the shape of the Trinity. We'll pray to Father through the Son by the Spirit, but also pray to each individual, acknowledging that they are different as well as one. So why don't we do that now? Let's pray to God who is three and one. Loving Father, Gracious Son, empowering Spirit, we praise your name. A single name that is Father, Son, and Spirit. We praise you that you are mysterious and you are far above us. And we praise you that you have made yourself known to us in, in only a small way, but so significant. Lord, we come to you we see your complexity and we're in awe of who you are. And yet, Lord, we also see how you've worked in history. As a father, you have adopted us. As a son, you have served us. As a spirit, you send us. So, Spirit, empower us to be missionaries, changed and transformed by you through the gospel. Jesus, Son, Shower upon us grace and love and mercy that shines down from your cross. And God the Father, remind us day by day that we are your children, supremely valued, 
because of what Jesus has done. Lord, I pray that our lives would demonstrate and reflect these truths. Help us, our, our prayers to be marked by them. Help our, our worship to be, uh, to be marked by this. And help our lives, Lord, to reflect this. And reveal to us, Lord, even greater things than these. All through your powerful word made real to us. Amen.